So we're in chapter 13 of the church discipline uh, class, studying uh, beginning with Romans chapter 16. Um, let's read this other passage in uh, Acts 20. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. Who remembers the context of this section? Paul's interaction with the uh, elders at the church at Ephesus. Yes. Passing, passing, what, back through on his third journey? And Correct. Yeah, and he's stopping to, to meet briefly with them. Yeah, right. So he's meeting there in Miletus, mm -hmm. um, and and he anticipates this is likely the last time that he's going to see them. So he's got some, some pretty important things that he wants to share with them. Um, <clears throat> let's just read... Uh, 28 through 31, if someone would, would read those. Micah. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Thank you. So in this discussion, um, the previous chapter, what kind of individuals were we discussing? Domineering. Domineering, which were not, and I want us to, to, to pay close attention to it, not necessarily people who were teaching false things, but they were people who were, uh, they were overbearing. They were, they were pushing too hard. They were trying to control when it was not within their authority to control. They weren't necessarily people who were teaching things contrary, but their behaviors and their attitudes were, were contrary to the the servant heart that, that a Christian ought to have. The type of people we're discussing here in chapter 13 are, are of a different kind. False teachers <clears throat> are not necessarily going to be uh, these same type of people who are overbearing and pushing and they, they wear a sign that says, Hi, my name is Steve. I'm a false teacher. Um, oftentimes, uh, how how do they come across? Very smooth, very smooth and confident. The most effective ones, right? Now I will say this: <clears throat> in my limited experience, I have never met a false teacher <clears throat> who believed themselves to be a false teacher. Do you understand what I mean by that? I've n I, I personally have never met someone who knows that they're proposing a lie. They, they believe themselves to be teaching true things. And so I hope that that helps influence how we interact with people like this. We should not assume you're lying and you know you're lying and you're just trying to trick people. We should instead assume that they are trying to serve God but they have a misunderstanding of, of what his word says, and they are teaching others something that is not in accordance to, to the doctrine of Christ. 
Well, that comes to some self-reflection, though, too, just the fact that you're making the statement of they don't believe themselves. Well, I don't believe myself either. Right. Well, right, Tony, because you're the false teacher. <laughs> but, but just right. that, that self-reflection, though, goes a long way. If you're willing to able to examine yourself when you talk to someone, like, that, that, that tears down some barriers that you're willing to question even your own beliefs. That's right. And, and so it should allow, <clears throat> excuse me, it should allow us to be more patient, at least at the outset. We should not immediately assume my first interaction with this person is they're trying to trick me and they're evil and I've got to shut this down. No, my, my first interaction should be there's, there's some misunderstanding here about the, the way you're interpreting God's word. Let's study about that. Let's Let's dig into it and see if we can come to God's one truth about that. Um, but we will see, based on some of the passages that we've, we've read, there comes a moment, and, and Paul in, engages with these people or speaks about these people, there comes a time where clearly they are no longer interested in pursuing God's truth. And at that point, how, how do you deal with, with individuals <coughs> like that? So what I want for this class, I anticipate... This will probably be Wednesday's class as well. Is I want us to be able to recognize a false teacher. What does that mean? How do we know if someone is simply uh, confused or misguided, or if they are what what the scriptures teach? Someone uh, what the scriptures identify as someone who's teaching falsely, and how do we deal with someone like that? How do we interact with someone like that? What should be our approach? <coughs> yes. I uh, wanted to point out the next verse there from Acts 20 that I think helps to answer that question. It says, and now, <coughs> and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to hold you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It always ultimately comes back to God's word. Correct. And you point any teacher to God's word and compare what they're teaching to what God's word has to say. Yes. And at that point, that's how we differentiate between a teacher of truth and a teacher of error. Absolutely. And let's not kid ourselves. Sometimes it's not as clear cut as we wish it would be. Like sometimes we wish where we could go, you're teaching this, here's this verse that says the opposite of what you're teaching, therefore you're a false teacher. It takes diligence. It takes study. It takes time. You've got to work through it. Um, but we must work through it. And that's, that's why I led with this question. Let's read this quote. This chapter begins with this quote. <clears throat> so this is... Uh, Page number 154. It says, There is a kind of peace which can be had at the cost of evading all issues, refusing all decisions, shutting the eyes to things that are crying out to be dealt with. A peace which comes of a lethargic inactivity and an avoidance of all decisive action. The Christian must ever remember that the peace of God is not the peace which has submitted to the world, but the peace which has overcome the world. 
there is a temptation, and I believe that we all have it to some degree. Most of us don't enjoy conflict. I I don't. And if we can avoid it, we try to, right? I think it's actually a self-preservation mechanism that God gave to us. We don't like conflict. But sometimes, when it comes to spiritual things, there is the temptation to see and hear teaching that is not in accordance to God's word and think someone else will take care of that or it will take care of itself if I just leave it alone. If I can have, it says, a peace through lethargic inactivity. Let's just wait this thing out. <coughs> see how it see how it plays itself out and or ignore what what's going on. And I would say that's the same wisdom as children who are playing hide and seek and you ask them to hide and they go like this. They think if they don't see it, then no one sees them. And we would say, well, that's, that's foolish. And yet, there is a temptation at times to see or hear things that are being taught that are contrary to God's word and think, it'll go away. It'll eventually go away. Let's just... And that's not what, what Paul commends the Ephesian elders. He warns them of dangers, and we're going to talk about that in, in just a little bit, that are going to come from without and from within. And he doesn't say, wait it out and see how it all takes care of itself. He says, be watchful, dig back into the word, be committed to what, um, he says to Timothy numerous times, be committed to what's been entrusted to you um, because it will um, undergo threats at times. Any thoughts about that, that opening quote? I just found that helpful to begin our discussion. As with throughout this book, both with church discipline, with trying to uh, build and, um, and strengthen our fellowship with each other, the worst thing that we can do when it comes to working in God's kingdom is nothing. We, we must do something. We must be active. We must, we must be diligent. Um, peace will come when we have overcome the world. Um, peace is not obtained by surrendering to to the enemy. <clears throat> Without getting too much on the uh, the the culture soapbox, but we have seen this play out in so many arenas, haven't we? Movies and TV shows are being made with pretty much one message, because for decades. Christians sat back and did nothing with it. And so it's no surprise that one thing now is being done primarily with it. Paul talks about this... Well, let me ask you, how does Paul talk about, or the apostles, or Jesus, talk about our Christian walk in the New Testament? What are some words or phrases that he uses to describe the life of a Christian? Gary. Walk. Walk worthy of your calling. So he calls it a walk. A walk. He says, "Walk worthy of of your calling." Right. That's the beginning of Ephesians four. How else is the Christian life described? 
walk circumspectly, looking around, not just <clears throat> wandering aimlessly. Okay, walk circumspectly. Yeah, so don't, don't, you need to walk with the destination in mind, right? Don't walk looking at your feet, but you're looking up, you're being aware. What else? It's a race of endurance. Okay, he calls it a race. And it's not necessarily a race that you have to be the fastest. Because it's a race of endurance. Okay. You've got to finish. Right. You got to get there. Right. That implies it's going to require effort on our part. You think about an endurance race. I can barely get my body through a 5K before I think I'm going to die. This is something that we need to be actively working at our, our whole lives, right? Um, busy and, and, and relying on the strength that God provides. How else is a Christian life described? These are all correct answers, absolutely. As children of light. Okay, as children of light. So there's a contrast. That's right. So we should not live and, and act in such a way so that we look like the rest of the world. There should be a contrast, right? No longer as the Gentiles would walk. Okay. How does Paul describe it in Ephesians 6? It's a battle. It requires armor. It is a battle that we would be foolish to go into unequipped. When Paul is nearing the end of his life, he tells Timothy that I have fought the good fight. And I don't, I don't believe that Paul is saying, I've been argumentative and violent towards people. But he is saying, what, what he goes on to explain in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Christianity is not something that I choose to be a, become a part of so that I can then live a life of ease. It is something wonderful that we are promised that at the end of our race, we do get to enjoy bliss forever with, with the, one, the ones that we love the most. Like That is peace and that's bliss. But we, we don't get there by becoming a Christian and, and coasting on in. Right? Yeah, David. Heaven's the retirement plan. <clears throat> that's right. That's right. We, you know, we work in this life physically to retire we work spiritually till the end of this life and then retire and that's not to say that we don't get any of the benefits of a relationship with Christ until after we die oh no no Uh, the Christian life um, is so much more full and, and fulfilling than anything we can have um why, why am I going through all of this? It kind of seems like we're all in agreement here. The, the Christian walk is, uh, it demands activity, it demands exertion and endurance. We are not simply putting a title on ourselves, but we are fighting a war. Why is that necessary for us to understand when we are discussing watching out for false teachers? Because that's one of the methods that the devil uses to um, try to 
um, invade the camp of Christ. Does, the devil doesn't actually need us to fight against God. He just needs us to stop fighting. And so if he can get us to still come to worship and still interact, but not actually put forth the effort when it's required at times to stand up for truth and fight against error. If we're not being soldiers who are actively fighting, the the devil is just as pleased with that. Joy? Uh, Another way, um, we are supposed to be ambassadors of Christ, which kind of encompasses everything that's been said here to be a representative of Christ. Yes. And um, which, you know, takes in everything that everybody else has said. Yes. Yeah, so it involves going out and and spreading that light, right? We're not to be children of light and put ourselves under a basket, are we? No. So, yeah, we are are to go out and represent Christ, right? Uh, That that requires that we understand who we are representing. Correct. And and on the other side, we need to recognize who is not of the light. We need to recognize what false doctrine looks like. Yes. And this is where this lesson gets uh, difficult. Difficult for me to prepare uh, and to present. Difficult to talk about. Because in order for us to be watchful for false teachers, we have to be willing to make a distinction between what is true and what is false. And our, our generation hates that. We are told we have no right to judge others. We have no right to make distinctions between your truth and my truth. And that is bleeding into, it's not just now happening, it has been. It's bleeding into God's church where we have a tendency to think, it's not my place to tell you that what you're saying or living or teaching is wrong. I need to bear with you. Well, there is some truth to that, certainly. I need to be patient with you as we all kind of work together to understand God's truth. But we are inundated with the message that it's wrong of me to make distinctions between truth and lies. We, we must not become lethargically inactive. And so we have to, how do we, how do we make the distinction then? Just like <clears throat> Timothy, even Matthew, Second Peter, types of things that are accompanied with that. Acts even, I think, in the, I'm sure Romans 16 even says something that not, not just about what is taught, but what else is this person doing along with the fruits that they're bearing? Yes. And so to just say that it's simply to be a false teacher is, well, that you don't hold the line on all of these doctrines. But there's also some things that go along with that, that they're espousing or that they're sordid game, you know, that they're... Like Second Peter talks about that they're wanting to come in and adultery and, and fornicating. First uh, Timothy talks about that. Um, ah, now I've forgotten the word how he exactly he uses that. Of, um, not just destructive heresy, but like uh, 
that taking that, captive women yeah who are, well take, wanting to take advantage of people yeah um, you know looking that it, it's a, a source of gain for them um, you know that the, there's fruit that comes along yes with this and I it, I think it's more than just like a pause not not knowing or you know maybe maybe I'm I'm believing something that may not be in accordance even on like the resurrection or something like that but you know that's I feel like there's something different there than someone who's wanting who who actually is evil I guess to some extent like I, I think there's might be a distinction yes. that Paul and Peter and others are making of the there's something coupled with that and and I would agree with that that I've encountered and I even see it in scripture when when Paul is talking to these Ephesians Ephesian elders about these people um, what does he say um, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them I I see that as different than when we saw Apollos who ignorantly was teaching the baptism of John not trying to draw not trying yeah. but I would say the response to both of those groups was the same. And what was it? Clearly teach them the truth. Do it in love, and we've talked about this. There's never a place, even if you are encountering a false teacher, to smack them in the face with it. But there is also, there is uh, folly in assuming, well, I mean, Apollos' motives are good. He's doing a good thing. I'm just going to leave him to it. He'll figure that out. No, that's not the approach that Aquila and Priscilla took. They very lovingly, gently, and privately tried to communicate to that person uh, the truth of God more effectively. So I would say I'm, yes. I'm getting at just that, be careful just to assume that, it, like, well, you just can't know. Like, but there's, there's food to come along with. Yes, and let's, let's talk about that here in, in just a second. Did I see a hand? Gary. So a question. So say you're in a small congregation and somebody who's not given to preaching gets up and clearly makes a lot of false statements in his sermon. Do you just let the people leave and go on thinking about what he just taught falsely and pull them aside afterward and say something to them? Or do you get up after the sermon and say, we need to correct a few things here? It's that's an interesting question. I've seen it done a couple of different ways. Um, Jeremy once shared a story where someone literally got up in the middle of his sermon and called him the Antichrist and false teacher, and you know disrupted the entire thing. Um, I don't believe I see that as a scriptural approach. Um, what I do see, I, I think, the story of Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla is exceptional. He was out teaching and preaching all over, but it does say that they took him aside privately and helped him better understand. Um, I think I've shared this example before, um, but it, it had such a profound effect on me. The congregation that I attended at in Roswell, Georgia, there was a man who was teaching an entire class. It was actually a high school class. Clearly false teaching regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And his motives were not pure. He was attempting to do that in order to justify the lifestyle of his son. And the elders did not 
bust into that class and we're shutting this thing down. And you're all, no. One of the high school students, who was actually a very new Christian, was reading the text and hearing this teacher and saying, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to match up here. And so he went to the elder. This, I mean, he had not been a Christian for more than a year. Came to one of the elders and said, can you help me understand this? This doesn't seem right. So the elders, privately, the majority of the congregation had no idea this happened, took that man aside. He was willing to study. And after a few studies, and I appreciate this man, uh, he said, I'm still not sure how I feel about this, but clearly I have no right to be teaching this until I've come to a better understanding of the scripture. And continued to study with the elders, but he, he acknowledged Until I've come to a clear understanding of the truth, I have no right to be teaching this to other people, especially (coughs) high school students. And the congregation had no idea because the elders very privately and very wisely took care of it, and there was unity. We need to make sure... Now, you said, what if he had gotten in front of the, the entire congregation and had said things that were contrary to doctrine? We need to make sure that um, that the group understands what, what truth is. And there's a way to do that without vilifying and shaming and destroying the person who may be ignorantly, like Apollos, was teaching something con- contrary to truth. Um, I'd love to hear the perspective I, of now. I, uh, <laughs> I personally had an Aquila and Priscilla moment in, uh, in Lafayette where... I was the one who publicly said that uh, John's baptism was not for the forgiveness of sins. And someone clarified with me after my comments Mm -hmm. that um, uh, that doesn't jive with what the text says. And and I'm like, oh my, you're right. And, you know, at the next assembly, I was able to correct that because I didn't intend... And it was just a yeah. misunderstanding. Uh, I'm thankful it happened that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so as, as uncomfortable as it may be, n- those types of situations cannot end with such a positive result unless we are willing at the beginning to identify <coughs> there is a difference between true teaching and doctrine and false teaching and doctrine. We must not immediately vilify the person and assume motives and you know set out to destroy them. Um, but I loved what this chapter said. I'm trying to remember where exactly it said it. <clears throat> I planned on ending the class with, with these uh, sections, but I'm going to go ahead and read it now. On page 165... Um, about halfway down the page it says and even though what our brother believes may be very different from what we have always heard and believed if we were to sit down with him and discuss it we might find that his point of view is as biblical as our own if not more so on the other hand our personal attention and concern may help our brother see that he is in fact in error and respond accordingly again Keeping discipline within the context of the local church makes this both workable and effective, 
and also makes us less likely to criticize the beliefs of others without knowing them or without knowing what we're talking about. Somewhere between the two fires, and for those that, that read the chapter, it's a Ukrainian phrase that I actually really liked. We, we say between a rock and a hard place. They say between two fires. You'll get burned if you go to either extreme here. Somewhere between two fires of tolerating every destructive teaching which comes along and making an issue of every disagreement lies a narrow ground of responsible spiritual discernment. It is that ground that Scripture calls us to occupy. The concerns of our faith are simply too great for us to fail to test the spirits, which was an admonition given, uh, I believe, in First Peter. But the consequences of being overzealous about doctrinal purity and equally drastic for the peace and unity of the church. The faith we hold in common is the basis of our fellowship, and we must guard that foundation at all costs, while at the same time remembering that those with whom we disagree are our brothers and sisters. Likewise, our identity as God's holy people requires us to be true to his word, but also not to unnecessarily injure the body or any member of it in the process. It may be difficult to walk between two fires, but it's worth it in order to remain true to our faith and to one another. So if we get nothing out of this class, there's a whole lot more I'd like to get into. But if we get nothing out of this particular class, I, I want us to, to recognize those two fires are both equally wrong and dangerous. To hear teaching that is contrary to the pure doctrine of Jesus... And I use doctrine. <clears throat> I grew up reading the New King James. It says doctrine. More modern translations say teaching. I don't think any of us would bristle at that word. The teaching of Jesus Christ. To hear things contrary to the true teaching of Christ and do nothing. And sometimes we do that by saying, but they're genuine. I don't think they mean it maliciously. That's just the way that they've always been taught. But to hear it and do nothing is, is playing with fire. On the other hand, to sit everybody down and go, what are your thoughts on this and this and this and this and this? And what are your thoughts on this and this? Oh, there's a disagreement here and we're going we're gonna to fight this out tooth and nail until we all know. But somewhere in the middle is we have a grave responsibility to teach what Jesus taught. Only that and all of that. So for example, actually I'm going to stop and open it up for questions because I'm interested to hear some thoughts. Well I think there's a paragraph right at the beginning of the book of this chapter as well that goes right along with this idea of the two fires that it kind of concludes with. Maybe it's part of the key as we did, I don't know. <laughs> but on page 155, uh, that last paragraph there, he says, uh, the second sentence, or third sentence, far too often churches and their leaders are more attuned to secondary issues among believers and fail to notice when genuine false teaching, which have the potential of eroding uh, faith, are being circulated. When we compare the matters which are often the subject of quarreling and division among and within churches today to the great themes of the gospel, it becomes evident that we are too often, this was brought up last class, Majoring in the minors and ignoring genuine heresy right under our noses. So, you know, that's this, I think, that's very similar to this idea of between two fires, right? We have 
We have um, um, uh, the, the things that, that are potentially eroding the faith uh, from these false teachers, and these are the things that we need to make sure that we don't avoid for the sake of focusing on, on something, the other things that, you know, maybe, like you said, Tony and I may have a little disagreement on, but do we need to spend, you know, three months studying that versus the fact that I don't, unless, you know, I don't believe baptism is necessary, and he does. Now there's a potential big problem, and, and I'm trying to teach that baptism isn't necessary. Okay. Okay. Gary? Since Mike brought that up, I, I had a question from later on in the, the chapter where he talked about first importance versus, like, first things versus secondary things. I had some questions, too. What does uh, everybody else's... Uh, version say for first Corinthians 15 so you're referring to page 162 mm -hmm. yeah. and that uh, first first importance is in parentheses there that's kind of his rendering of it I take it yeah where does he actually quote that first Corinthians 15 yeah first Corinthians 15 verse 3 someone want to read that for us please for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the Twelve, and then others. Okay. Is yours ESV? Uh, New American Standard. New American Standard. Mine says first of all. First of all. what? And that's New American Standard? No, King New King James. James. Yep. Yours similar? Yeah. First yeah. of all? Yeah. yeah. I think one translation said first and foremost. I never really thought about it in this light. It was very interesting to me. Well, I, I, my assumption was that the passage was just saying, well, what, what else was he going to come with first to tell people? I'm not going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you about, oh, then on the, uh, we also eat bread. Well, right. Like, okay, what? Like you, you got to start. With you got to start somewhere, and right? Just saying, that's where it started. Yes. So, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for. If this is the answer I'm going to give this morning. I think we need to be very, very careful to create buckets yeah. of first importance and second importance when we don't see that happening in the New Testament. Because your bucket I think we need may to be, be real correct, and it's not my church. <clears throat> it's Jesus's church. And unless I see Jesus creating buckets of first and second importance, <coughs> I, I have no right to do such a thing. So this author uh, lists these seven ones of Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. All truths which all believers presumably must hold in common. Agree, but just those seven? And who determined that? Because that's not what I read in, in the New Testament. So let me, so in, in order to answer that, let's read a few passages together because uh, I'm not interested in what I think about it. I'm, uh, you know, quite frankly, I'm not interested in what any of us think about it because I think we'll all come to potentially different. I'm interested to know what Jesus taught about it, and I'm interested to, to see how the, the apostles, the inspired apostles, talked about this. So let's read a few of the passages. Please, someone other than me. Um, let's do Galatians 1, verses 
Uh, let's actually read First Matthew 7. Can we do verses 15 through 23? <clears throat> so whoever gets there first, just jump on it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now I realized only this morning that the email that I sent did not include verses uh, 21 through 23. Sorry about that. Um... I believe that section is intended to be read together. I don't normally do that. Normally, I do 15 through 20 and make some interesting and, I believe, truthful points about that. And then, sometimes we read 21 through 23. I believe he's talking about the same group. You have people who say to Christ, Lord, Lord. What does that imply about those people? Christians. Those those are people who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. And they're crying out to Jesus. He even goes on to say in verse 22, I don't know exactly how this works, but they are also people who apparently have the ability to work miracles. And Jesus is not willing to accept those people. Why not? They're doing things according to the way they want to do them. Verse, well, God. specifically, what does he say in verse 21? You have to do the will of the Father. You actually have to do what he says. Which is to imply nothing more than that and nothing less than that. And you may have all good intentions. You may acknowledge Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and cry out to him. But Jesus himself says that unless you actually do what I tell you to do, I can't accept you. What about Galatians 1, verses 6 through 12? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any gospel to you, then that which we have preached to you will be accursed. As we have said, there be your. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. On the 12, he said? Yes, please. Or do I now persuade men for God, or do I seek to please men? Or if I still please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, 
that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, I know I'm guilty of only reading a couple of these passages, and usually I want to bring this out when I'm studying with Mormons. Uh, remember, if angels come, let's read this whole thing in its context. What do we know about these people that Paul is talking about? Good and bad. What do we know about them? They had heard the gospel. They had heard the gospel. They're preaching to other people. But they've done something to that message that is now... um, yeah, you said perverted. What's the what's the verse nine? He says, contrary to the one that you've received. He says a different gospel, but then he clarifies himself. And this is important. Are there multiple gospels? Are there different flavors of Christianity? It would be so easy, and so. It would be so much easier if I if we could say that. Wouldn't it? We would have that lethargic, inactive peace that we desire, wouldn't we? If we could just say, that's okay. We're all Christians. Yours is a little different than mine, but that's okay. Is that what Paul says here? What does he say must be preached? Whose gospel? He does. He calls it the gospel of Christ in verse 7. But he gives us a little bit more more information. How would would you further describe? Verse 9, it says the gospel that you have received. Supposedly from whom? Because he goes on to say. That's why I wanted us to read 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me was not man's gospel. I didn't get this from other men. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's like, I just want you guys to to make sure you understand. What I gave to you, I didn't create. I didn't get from another man who created. I got it from Jesus himself. So what I've given you is Jesus' gospel. And he said, if anyone comes and delivers anything but that, or anything different than that, they are not preaching the gospel. So, going going back to the context of discipline, I mean, if you got up and you preached, Craig, that um, baptism was wrong, it wasn't for salvation, people would, you know, right away, you know, say, whoa, that's, that's not right. But if you got up and you started saying something along the lines of uh, what you can eat or what you can wear or maybe the head covering, are people going to be as quick to jump on you and say, wait a minute, you're teaching false doctrine, you're a false teacher, and we need to you know, separate ourselves from you? Because there's, like he pointed out in here, there's a lot of things that Paul teaches in Corinthians and in Romans that are issues of uh, opinion. We call yeah issues or, of conscience, right? Or issues that we shouldn't yep. 
that we shouldn't be dogmatic about because we're all in different stages of our growth and our faith. So I guess that was the context that I was appreciating. Yes, and this absolutely a good question. So first of all, I hope that no matter what I or anyone got up and said, that no one would then jump on me, right? But if, like John said, I got up and I said something that wasn't true, and maybe it was done in ignorance, maybe it was done on purpose, I hope that my brothers and sisters in Christ who love me would come to me in patience and forbearance and, and, and wisdom, and that I would, checking my own heart, be willing to receive and hear well, that was bad verbiage on my part. No, 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 you're good, and I, and I appreciate it. So, how do you then reconcile it with passages like Romans 14 and, and, and 1 Corinthians? Well, we and have again, to define the gospel. We would have to define the gospel, and we would have to make sure, with the limited amount of time, because I, I knew that this would, that clock is not working at all. <laughs> Man, we've been going for a while. Um, we'll, we'll take this into Wednesday for sure. We need to make sure that we do not put things in buckets that Jesus never put in. Because there would be a temptation to put a lot of things in matters of conscience and opinion and simply say, look, as long as we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, everything else is, is secondary. Is that what Jesus said in Matthew 7? As long as you acknowledge Jesus' Lordship, we're, we're preaching the same gospel. No. So it requires us not to find out what this denomination teaches or this denomination. It requires us to know thoroughly to the best of our abilities and to continue throughout our Christian walk to know what is the full gospel. Yeah, John. And that we work to maintain the unity of the Spirit as we all <coughs> mature yes. and grow yes. in our faith and our understanding that we no longer are children, but that doesn't happen overnight. Yes. And so there yes. has to be this process that we go through. Yes. That's, I think, the challenge. Yes. So real quick, and I really appreciate that. It is wrong of me to say, you ought to know better. I've got a clear understanding of this, obviously, in my 37 years, and you ought to know better, and then to, and I'm going to withdraw fellowship from you until you do. No, 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 no. We are all in different stages of growth, spiritually. But just as Paul, when he communicated with the, the Corinthians, it is not good of us to say, and that's fine. Paul spoke to the Corinthians and said, by this time you ought to have been eating meat. And you're still eating milk. And he didn't say, no problem. We're all at different stages of growth. He said, come on. Come on, Corinthians. Let's, let's, let me remind you of the truth. Because what's the goal for all of us? To be mature. To be mature. That we may grow in, and I'm going to mangle these verses, but the goal is that we may be one heart and one mind, unified in purpose, that we may all grow in maturity. And we do ourselves a disservice if we say we're all at different stages of growth and that's fine to leave it there. No, 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 no. If I'm spiritually immature, I owe you a favor if you'll come to me and help me grow. And, and that's really what, what we're after. I've taken us over, clearly. It's, uh, you know, 
almost four o'clock now. So um, we'll talk more about this on on Wednesday. That's ten twenty. Oh, it's the short. I, I'm I am out of it, guys. I'm sorry. Ten twenty. I was thinking, yeah, it's four o'clock. Well, let's let's meet back at. Well, thank you for correcting my inaccurate uh, false statement about the clock. Sorry, I did in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, it was good for the group. It's that jet lag, right? It's, it's too long. I can't keep using that excuse. So, so I'm going to have to study this a little bit longer. I just noticed something. And I went back and I looked at the, one, the references that lead to the same thing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This is translated. This is not acknowledging Christ as God. Lordship as the word Lord meaning master or or teacher or so because it's not the capital O or D. And so I'm not sure if, and like I said, I'm going to need to study this some more. I'm not sure if the reason that I never knew you is because you don't acknowledge me as God. Well, you won't see the capital O R D in the New Testament because that's Jehovah, that's the Hebrew. I see it in mine. Do you? Yeah, in the New King James. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but but like I said, I, I'm gonna have to look at that yeah, again. Absolutely, I would say whatever whatever that means, they were using his name his name to right. perform miracles, right? And so, how could you do that if you just believed him to be some kind of master? If you're using his name to perform miracles, you're you're attributing to him. Well, some some some, some authority, authority, authority anyway. at least authority, right? Right, right. Like I said, I so, I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, but. <clears throat> But yes, I do. I just, I just thought I don't know if there's a distinction there or not. So I mean, I'm going to look at that. Absolutely, please do. Yeah, please there do. may not be. There may not 